Good morning, good afternoon or good evening, wherever you are in the world. It's me, Damien Barr, welcoming you back to another Salon exclusive where you get to be the very first people in the world to hear about the upcoming books that we are most excited about. Now, understatement time, it's been a difficult couple of years. Many of us have been living on our own or in circumstances where we wished we were living on our own. It has really been the very toughest of times and everybody's responded to it in different ways at different moments. For Ed O'Loughlin, he has taken this time to reflect on his own mortality and the result is his memoir called The Last Good Funeral of the Year, which I just think is a brilliant title. Ed is better known as a Canadian-Irish journalist. He's also a novelist who was long-listed for the Booker and for the Walter Scott Prize for historical fiction. This is a key change for him. It's first-hand, it's his own story, and it is very affecting. It's very funny, but it's also very sad. So we are obviously going to be talking more about issues of grief in this, and I'm making you aware of that for your listening. In his memoir, Ed explores the connections between memory and guilt and the way that time changes when you're grieving. Um, Sometimes it seems like forever, sometimes it seems like a moment. And this whole meditation was prompted by the death of an old girlfriend. So I feel like it's something that we can all relate to after the time that we've been through, both personally and collectively. Anyway, here is Ed with more from his book, the last good funeral of the year. Hello, my name is Ed O'Loughlin and I'm very happy to be asked to read exclusively from my new memoir, The Last Good Funeral of the Year for Damien Barr's Literary Salon. By way of introduction, I was born in Canada and brought up in Ireland, where I live now in Dublin with my wife and two teenage daughters. Before moving back here and taking up writing on my own account, I worked for 14 years in Africa and the Middle East as a foreign correspondent. Some of this experience inspired two of my four novels, and it is also dealt with more directly in this memoir. This reading comes from the beginning of the opening chapter, Undecided, which deals with the death in 2020 of an old friend whom I hadn't seen for years, a former girlfriend, as it happens. Although it was many years since our time together, her death, of which I had no warning, affected me very deeply and in ways which made little apparent sense to me at the time. I found myself moved to explore that part of my life in writing and having started to look back, it became difficult to stop. This came as a surprise to me. Although I'd already written four novels, I never had any thought before of writing directly about myself, much less digging up my past for a memoir. As a fiction writer and news reporter, it would have felt to me a bit like showing off. The title of the book, The Last Good Funeral of the Year, comes from the fact that my friend died just before the COVID pandemic reached Europe and lockdown restrictions began, including for funerals. Funerals are important occasions in Ireland, and as it happens, there are quite a few of them in this book. It isn't by any means a tale about COVID, but it does look at the past through the frame of the present. So I think some of that feeling of isolation, of life on hold, works through to its story and not always in a bad way. 
I found parts of this book very difficult to write, and in other places I caught myself laughing. I can only hope that readers will know which part is which. Undecided You're not doing that right, she told him, as she watched him from the bed. He stopped and turned to look at her. Or maybe he hadn't turned to look at her. Maybe he found her reflection in the mirror, foregrounded by the razor he held in his hand. That's how a writer would frame it. What are you talking about? You're not meant to shave like that. You're meant to do it smoothly. He stared at her, incredulous. He knew she could be bossy, but this was too much. What do you know about shaving your face? She had shaved her legs and armpits, of course. And she must have seen it on TV, in the commercials. A handsome man draws a razor in a long, smooth pass through a perfect mask of shaving foam, exposing a line of tan skin. No scraping motions, no nervous sewing away at the same patch of face, which was how he shaved, back and forth, up and down, the way most people brush their teeth. Try it, she said. She would have bounced in the bed as she said it. Her enthusiasm always took physical form. She would have raised her voice as they bickered, still delighted with each other. She would have laughed at him. She had a brash, happy laugh. Seriously, try doing it more smoothly. And in the end he did. And it worked. But it was too late for her. Her chin was already raw from the beard rash. He remembered the bed in their guest house as narrow, but all beds feel narrow at that age when you seldom roll far apart. So he could be wrong now, twenty-seven years later, about the width of that bed. But he did remember the nights they had spent there and how they had felt. He remembered her telling him how to shave better. And he remembered their room in that Donegal guesthouse, two faces in a mirror, a pattern of light, the placement of the bed with a window to the right of it. But he couldn't remember what town it was in. He had an idea it was Moville, though it might have been Cardona. They drove up from Dublin in his first car, the one he'd bought at a police auction, and later that day they crossed Inishowen to Loch Swilly. By the shore in Boncrana, in the cold rain from the west, an old fisherman delighted her with stories of his life at sea. She loved talking to strangers, which was something he dreaded. But twenty-seven years later, those stories were gone. In Derry, on the way home, she saw candy-striped shirts outside a pub near the bogside. Derry City were playing Shelburne from Dublin in a League of Ireland soccer match. She decided she wanted to go. When she wanted to do something, she usually did it. She was always curious, always looking for something new. He was reluctant, but they went to the game in the Brandywell anyway, and it was fun. It usually was with her. And twenty-seven years later, when it became suddenly urgent for him to gather all the fragments that he had of Charlotte MacDonald to establish the timelines, he remembered this match and realised that it was a beacon, a quasar, a point he could fix in lost space and time. To determine exactly when they had gone north for that weekend, he could look up the football records online. Derry City played Shelburne at home in the Brandywell on Sunday, 1st of November, 1992, a little over a month short of his 26th birthday. No kickoff time was given, but he could remember the floodlights and the chill in the air. 
Had he really agreed to drive the four hours back to Dublin in the dark, late at night, during the Troubles, on the old bad roads, through the border at Ochnacloy, just so she could watch a semi-professional football match? She wasn't even that big a fan of football. He had to hand it to Charlotte. What she wanted, she usually got. The record said that the match finished scoreless, though he could have sworn he remembered a goal. What did he really remember about his time with Charlotte MacDonald? The 1st of November, 1992. That, at least, was a start. He put that into the timeline. He had come to remember their thing, more or less fondly, as a summer fling, but now that he checked, it was winter and fall. Charlotte had graduated two years before, with a degree in law that she no longer wanted. She'd gone to live in France with a boyfriend, and she'd come back to Dublin without him. Having just turned 24, she moved back in with her parents and younger siblings. She was weightless then, undecided, no job and no plans. She could have become anything, and that's how he would always remember her. As it turned out, she would start her own business in a creative industry, and she would do very well. His phone pinged on the table to the left of his laptop. 27 years later. Without picking up the phone, he glanced at its screen and then closed his eyes. Charlotte, he said. He had a sense of something coming gently loose inside him, of a subroutine that had been running for decades, unnoticed in the background, revealing its existence by the act of shutting down. Later that night, he called Charlotte's cell phone. He assumed it would have been switched off by then, that his call would go to voicemail, and that he'd hear her bored voice one last time, telling him to leave a message and that she would get back to him. But instead, it started ringing, so he ended the call before somebody answered. He'd used this trick before, twenty years ago, calling his brother's Nokia, but back then, he'd known for sure that no one would answer. His brother, unlike Charlotte, had lived and died alone. It occurred to him now, at 10.35pm on the night of Charlotte's death, that someone, at some point, and most likely her husband, would pick up Charlotte's phone and see the message on the screen, missed call, and the time it was made, and most likely his name. He and Charlotte had each other's numbers, but they never used them anymore. He hoped that her husband, whom he liked, would understand. And when her husband later replied to his email of condolence, a couple of days later, he made no mention of any posthumous phone calls. Thanks for getting in touch, he said. The fact was projected onto his ceiling that first night, and for many nights thereafter. He should have known that Charlotte was dying. It turned out she'd been very sick for several months. He should have been in contact with her.